So uh, today we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians, and then I'm going to be preaching from Exodus. We're on 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 12. Before we begin, let's again pray for the saints um, that are scattered. Well, I'm sorry, I had my I had this too far from me. That was my, my that was my problem. Okay, let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for. Uh, the fact that we have we live in an era in which we can use technology to spread the gospel around the world in ways that would have been impossible even 20 years ago. And Lord, we uh, don't take that for granted. We, we take it as a privilege that, that you've granted us the opportunity to do this, the opportunity to put the word of God out for people that they might be fed. And Lord, we do pray for the dear saints like those ones I met in Barbados and ones that are scattered um, all around the world as you've graciously converted people through the gospel. We pray for their well-being and that they find fellowship and everything that they need. And we pray today that you'd give us wisdom as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5. Now, in the context, we've been talking about the fact that Paul's talking about eternity. He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And making a contrast between the temporal and the eternal. And discussing the fact that uh, to be absent from the body, we're going to be be with the Lord. And the last verse we looked at, verse 11, he said, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the fear of the Lord in the context that we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so it it matters. It matters what we do. It matters how we live. It matters what we believe, and it matters what we teach. And that fear of God is sadly absent in, 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 in many cases. Somebody handed me something today. And just to illustrate, just this morning somebody handed me this and, and, and said, uh, well, this is the newsletter from our former church, and... Here's the adult Bible study. Jesus lost in space. Yeah. Jesus lost in space. They're going to have a science fiction Bible study. And come explore these topics. One, Jesus was a Jedi master. Christianity in the Force. Now, that's supposedly the evangelical church. Now, if you think about what we're studying, if you, it says knowing the fear of God we persuade men. What happened to the fear of God that you'd bring stuff like that into the church? And how is that going to ever help anybody grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord? And I think that and the same thing is happening down in Barbados, which is a discussion we had at one of those meetings with pastors. And we, I just would to God that every elder and pastor and spiritual leader would have the idea in their heart and mind that the one thing that God is going to use uh, powerfully is His Word and the truth of His Word. People need to know what the Bible means. And they need to know how it applies in their life. And if they're not given that, they're being put on a, 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 a diet that will... Uh, so you're going to get scurvy. You'll get scurvy. Um, right? Did, I, we've used this analogy before. You can have certain food, but if you're missing some things, like the sailors used to, to be missing, you'll get scurvy. And it's a very bad thing. 
And that's what's going to happen if you don't have the whole counsel of God. Okay, so knowing the fear of God would persuade men, but Paul now defending his ministry, and he needs to do so. He hates to have to do so, but he needs to, because if his ministry is discredited, then the gospel he's preached is discredited, and that's not an acceptable outcome. So he's going to have to go on throughout this uh, Second Corinthians and defend himself against the super apostles who had false teachings and were trying to discredit him. So then he goes on in verse 12, says, Okay, we're manifest to your consciences. I've spoken the word, Paul said. I've lived a life that, you, that you've seen and known is, is in keeping with what I preach. Then he goes on and says in verse 12, We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in the heart. So the, the false teachers were taking pride in things that really are of no consequence concerning the gospel and concerning anything eternal. They took pride in rhetorical skill. They took pride in sophistry. We can just read between the lines of First and Second Corinthians and see that. Remember when Paul says, I didn't come to you in human wisdom? Well, the, the false teachers did. They were sophists. They had the wisdom of this world to uh, teach rather than the pure word of God. They took pride in their appearance. Paul didn't look like much. And you can imagine a guy that had already been um, left for dead and beaten and, and stoned. And, uh, and they didn't have plastic surgery back then. Okay? So what you look like, you look like. And then Paul didn't look like much at all. He couldn't have. And so they brought that up. They took pride in appearance. So he says that he wants them to take pride in the message that Paul preaches and uh, that's manifested to their consciences. And they're persuading men concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word. So, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance. Literally in the Greek it says face, what something looks like on the surface. Take, taking pride on uh, on the surface, the, the outward appearance, the face, is what it says, and not in the heart. Now, the heart is unseen, but what's in the heart becomes evident by what people teach and how they act. Okay, the, 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 the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay, so the, the thing that motivate us, the things that are important to us, will ultimately determine the choices that we make and uh, the, the way that we live. And so the heart becomes evident by the, the outward manif- manifestations that can be seen. So he's hoping that, that these Corinthian Christians will come to his defense and not allow the super apostles uh, to dissuade them from listening to his gospel. So that's the key issue here in this passage. So there's the face, there's the heart. And the false teachers will always try to uh, impress people with outer appearances. They'll, they'll, um, I turn, I was watching a, um, a heresy channel. And there was a, um, they call it Christian TV, but here's this guy standing out on a tarmac in front of his 
private jet that he'd bought with the donations the people had sent into the ministry. And the show of ostentatious outward appearance was just incredible. And why should I listen to somebody because he owns a private jet? How does that commend the gospel to anybody? You know, it, it, there may be some reason for this guy to have a private jet, but he shouldn't stand out in front of it and make that his calling card. I have a private jet, therefore I must be from God. No, it doesn't work that way. And by the way, the guy teaches a false gospel, too. Um, let's look up. Robert, you got the mic? One, it says 1, 1 Samuel 16, 7, and then Pauline, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 11, and Michelle... 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, and Dale, Galatians 6 and verse 14. I'll, I'll repeat those. for you. I know people say I go too fast. You can't write them down. 1 Samuel 16, 7, 2 Corinthians 12, 11, 2 Corinthians 10, 12, Galatians 6 and verse 14. Okay? 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. The Bible, there's actually a name for God. It's, it's, it's uh, found in Acts and a couple other places. It's called, in the Greek, the heart knower. It's translated God who knows the heart, but literally it says the heart knower. God, that's one of the titles for God. He, he knows the heart. Now, thinking about that should be a little bit scary. Do you know what I mean? Is that if you think about it very seriously, God knows the heart, probably drives us to, to, to our knees or drives us to the means of grace and say, God, cleanse my heart. Because I know there's a lot of mixture in there that, that God's not pleased with. Um, so... Um, but we need to care about that and not about the temporal things and not about what people think. You know, it's a it's, it's hard lesson to learn, but the sooner we learn it, the more uh, benefit it gives us to know this. It does not matter what people think. It's the, the less we concern ourselves about that, the better off we are. Because people don't know the heart. They only, and, and so we would love to have accolades of people. And, it, and it's nice that people love us. But in the long run, if we worry too much about that, we'll make the wrong choices. Because we need to please the Lord, not man. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 11. I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Yeah, so Paul is complaining later that they compel him to give his credentials because it's the only way to defend himself against the super apostles. And, and, and he says, so I'm not any less than the most eminent apostle, but really I'm a nothing. So even in his self-commendation, he shows humility. Okay. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Okay. So there is... Uh, Good reason not to compare yourself to others and not to be concerned about um, whatever, uh, you know, who's, who's got the biggest church, who's got the biggest staff. I mean, I, I've seen this 
um, in, uh, you know, it just gets into the church. And it's really, it's really a sad story, you know. It, it, it's, it's very tempting to try to be better than somebody else out there. But it, really, it doesn't mean anything. The more, you, the more you live on the face of the earth and the more you watch history unfold before our eyes, the more you know it really doesn't mean anything. You know what really matters is God's dear flock that He died for and He loves them. And, and, and every pastor and every elder absolutely has to have the number one concern is the welfare of the flock. Whether it's a little flock or a big flock or a scattered flock or whatever kind of flock the Lord would give us, they are precious to Him. Jesus died for every one of them. And He loves them so much, he wants, he wants them to be protected. He wants them to be fed. He wants them to be corrected if they stray. Why? Because He loves His flock. And that's the only thing that matters, not who's who. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. The only, thing that's gonna, the only one that's going to decide who did anything well is God here, verse 10, and the judgment seat of Christ. And, and, and we don't know what that's going to be exactly until we get there. So uh, we may be very surprised about who the Lord commands. Now, Galatians 6 and verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Amen. The term boasting is gets, uh, used a lot by Paul. And he 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 uses it negatively and positively. He uses it negatively like he did there. May it never be that I should boast. But he uses it positively, save in the cross of Jesus Christ. So he says, if any man boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Okay, so we, we can be boastful in the sense that how merciful and gracious God is that he saved us and how wonderful the gospel is and how precious it is to be a part of the family of God, but we shouldn't boast in ourselves by comparing our, us to somebody else and suggest, you know, try to figure out who's better or who's best. Remember the Sermon on the Mount was about that? About the guys praying out on the corner to be seen of men? And the guys, you know, doing religious activities? Yeah, he's playing. The guy prayed to himself. He prayed to himself, I thank thee, Lord, I'm not like other people. I'm not like a sinner over here. <laughs> and it says he's praying to himself. <laughs> he's just saying the words to make himself sound good. Um, so there's a lot about that. And in fact, in Matthew 23, there's a little cross-reference. To one of the things that is going to be coming up in Exodus 12 and 13 that I'm preaching on this morning is the idea of these phylacteries where they put these straps around their arms. There were little strips of Scripture and then on the forehead. And according to the scholars that I've read, in fact, every one of them that I, that, that I looked up said that that was never intended to be an item. It was intended to be figurative for, for knowing the Scripture, not wearing um, a, a device. But Jesus said in Matthew 23, you broaden your phylacteries. You know, in other words, I have a bigger one than you do. <laughs> Big box on your forehead, and the bigger it was, the more pious you were. <laughs> Yeah, you'd be better off to just know those scriptures and believe them than to wear the jewelry or the, or the, the phylactery. Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 13. Interesting passage here, and uh, 
It says here, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. Now, the word beside it's ourselves means to be kind of out of one's mind or uh, following some sort of an ecstatic or behavior. And it could be, it could be uh, a reference to what some of these super apostles were like. Okay? The, to go into some sort of a religious state, a religious state of ecstasy. And there are groups who pride themselves in working themselves up into a religious frenzy um, and, and thinking that the more frantic or out of their mind they become, the more God is at work. And that may be behind his comments here. Um, so, uh, let me, I got some quotes I wanted to read to you if I find the right one here. I'm looking for page 284. So these would be kind of opposites beside ourselves or of sound mind are, are two opposite ends of the spectrum. But Paul said if either case were true, whatever he's doing, he's doing it for their good and for their benefit. All right, now what was I looking for? 284, 285. He's, you know, this is from a guy named Barnett. Um, a more, uh, he talks about the alternatives that have been discussed about how to interpret this passage. And he says a more serious alternative is that Paul's zeal for ministry, like that of Jesus, as in Mark 3.21, laid him open to the charge that he was mad. The, the, procura- the procurator Festus made that very accusation against Paul in Acts 26.24. Um, uh, remember, he said, much learning has made thee mad. Okay, it made you go out of your mind. From the flow of Paul's text, it appears that persuade and self-controlled are for people, specifically the Corinthians in this context. On the other hand, the field of reference of openness, the heart, and besides ourselves, is God, not people. We conclude that Paul persuaded or evangelized people with, in a self-controlled manner. But from the heart to the God to whom he was open, he was beside himself because it was to God and not human beings that Paul was beside himself. We are able to exclude the explanation that Paul was beside himself in evangelism. Paul did not evangelize God. What is this ecstatic behavior? The options include, one, his own glossolalic, his own glossolalic speech. That's from the Greek word for tongues. Uh, unknown tongue, glossolalia. Uh, as referred to in 1 Corinthians 14:18, and two, Paul's experience 14 years before when he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 4. Remember, later we'll get to that, where Paul went in, up into paradise and he, whatever he saw, it was not expressible and it was not lawful to tell about. So that could have been his ecstatic um, moment that he's discussing here. Uh, but he's saying this rather rhetorically. If I am beside myself, um, he says, it is for God. So I think that's a pretty, Barnett gives a pretty good explanation. Whatever uh, ecstatic or um, highly intense uh, inexpressible religious experience Paul had, that was between him and God. And he talks about it in 2 Corinthians 12. 
That's not what he takes his stand based on. That's not what he wants to preach about. And he wouldn't even have told them about it if, if the false apostles hadn't compelled him to by claiming they had such experiences. And that was the ground of their uh, uh, claim that they should be listened to or believed. I mean, that's what we still see nowadays. Even, you know, we don't deny that people can have spiritual experiences or that we can have them ourselves. That just happens. People have spiritual experiences because they're people and things happen. But to make it your claim, because I had this experience, therefore, changes everything. And the, the charismatics, the revivals that you see, especially when you see a revival movement of one kind or another, mm-hmm. typically they're based on that. I had this experience, come and see, and you can have this experience as well. Or I had this experience, therefore you should listen to me. And Paul expressly didn't do that because he wanted the weight of the message of the gospel to pull in who it would and not to dangle Bethel for someone that would, would come for the wrong reasons. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, what's quite interesting, especially in America, I don't know what it is about us Americans, uh, but if you read a, a book, there's a book by a guy named by a guy by the name of Keith Hardman called Seasons of Refreshing the History of Religious Revivals in America. And he starts all the way back before Jonathan Edwards. And Hardman, his book, is just he's just explained this is what's happened in America for 300 years. Uh, and many, many of the revivals have been characterized by all kinds of strange phenomena. All the way back to Edwards' day. And Edwards even wrote about that. And there was this Cane Ridge revival, which was before, well, a hundred years before the Pentecostals. And in the Cane Ridge, there was all kinds of strange things going on. And uh, you end up with a kind of a mixed situation uh, in these various revivals. If some true gospel is being preached, God converts some people in spite of all this stuff. All right? But you also get a lot of fallout with bizarre teachings and people starting cults and I mean, the same thing happened with the uh, uh, Pentecostals because I, I was reading the history of the Pentecostal movement on my way to Barbados because I was going to speak about the new order of the latter reign when I got there and, I, and so I was reading about where all this stuff came from and, and, and even in that case if you take the early Pentecostal movement the uh, Azusa Street and there was a guy named Parnham and a few of these other guys um, Myland, who coined the term latter rain, as far as my research shows, they had they ended up with with Jesus only Pentecostals, which is heretical. We, they ended up with the new order of the latter rain, which was heretical. They ended up with apostles and prophets, which were heretical. But they also ended up with a fairly orthodox movement. The Assemblies of God came out of it, and, and they they staked out the territory of upholding to the doctrines that most other evangelical movements like the Christian and Missionary Alliance and, and other ones of the time held to, plus their distinctive idea about tongues. And so uh, out of the revival came some Orthodox Christianity and a lot of stuff that's really bad. So you make a good point. Then now we have the Toronto thing, okay? And I don't know if there's anything Orthodox there. I don't, I don't know if one good thing could come of it because they're not even preaching the gospel. As soon as the gospel's not there, you can't come up with Christianity. You don't, you don't gain Christianity from an experience. You gain it from the gospel. Okay? I think it's almost, you can equate it to Christian TV 
or to a revival is when Daniel went to, uh, and the, the children of Israel were taken to Babylon, and you had a banquet. And at the banquet, the king would serve. Depending on what your appetite was, that's, that's what you ate of. So the people that had an appetite for the king's delicacies, which were illegal, they were led astray at this banquet. But Daniel ate, and his friends ate vegetables, and they had an appetite for what was good or the gospel, and they followed God. And I think that if you went, you go to a meeting where there's a mixed message, or go see on television, Christian television, there's some people that preach the gospel, and there's some people that preach rank heresy. If your appetite is for the heresy, that's what you'll find there, and that's what you'll follow. Yeah. In the same television station, in the same audience, you'll have people going both directions. That's a good point. And the problem with some of these uh, ecstatic versions of Christianity is that people get an appetite for the experience, and they'll fly all over the world to get it again. And if they find out that there's a meeting somewhere where people are having some wild experiences, they'll fly there. Because they've got to have the experience. It's the only thing they can live on. And as I was reading all of this material, and it turned out that the 17 hours it took to actually get out of the airport here to into Barbados, because we had to sit seven hours in the Miami airport, and word to the wise, if there's anywhere to go that you don't want to go, it's the Miami airport. <laughs> that is awful. And I don't mind saying that publicly. You don't want to get stuck in a Miami airport. But, but nevertheless, I got my computer and I was writing and studying. So I'm, I had all those hours to read the, the, the claims of these apostles and prophets. All right? And here's the bottom line. After reading just books like that, uh, I read Bill Hammond and C. Peter Wagner and all these guys. Here's the bottom line. Here's, here's their worldview. God is always, at all times, trying to do greater miracles than have ever happened in history. God is wanting to do greater miracles. He's wanting to do greater things than Jesus did. He wants to do greater things than the apostles did. He wants to do great, glorious, powerful things continually. But he can't do it because the church isn't good enough. In other words, the right elite people haven't arisen. And as soon as we are holy, as soon as we are better, as soon as we have more faith, as soon as we get you know, to this exalted status to actually claiming, they're claiming that we have to become incarnations of Christ. This many-membered man-child is going, that's described in Revelation 12 is going to be us, is what they say. We're going to be the Christ. And... Uh, by the way, thank you, Bill, that, that, uh, for the clue about that 1679. I used it down there. That was, was right on. Uh, anyhow, when you're reading this, you think, but the, what, the, what, what you don't get, here's what I said in Barbados. I said, it doesn't happen. They're deluded because it doesn't happen and it never happens, and they run all over the world trying to make it happen. They're not walking on water. I can tell you they are not. I'm sitting here in my hotel overlooking the Atlantic Ocean, and all I see is jet skis and sailboats. I haven't seen anybody walking out there yet. All right? They're not raising the dead. They're not emptying the hospitals. They're not walking on water. They're not predicting their own resurrection from the dead like Jesus did. But they're saying that we're going to do greater miracles than Jesus or anybody ever has done in history. And Jesus is stuck in heaven and cannot come back until we do it. 
That's the claim. And it's still being made today under the auspices of C. Peter Wagner, Bill Hammond, and the Latter-day Apostles. Now, why do they go to these ecstatic meetings? Because they think something might happen. Anything. I mean, something has to happen. The, the, the thing that they fear more than anything else is just being ordinary Christians. Yeah, just the opposite of this verse. Well, we can't. We could not tolerate being sinners saved by grace. In fact, you never hear them talk about. And I'm going to talk about this in my sermon, where God told Israel, "Remember that you came from the slave house. Don't ever forget that you came from the slave house. Don't get into the promised land and start thinking God needed us, or we're exalted, or God chose us because we're better than everybody else." Or God chose us because we're the greatest people or the most uh, of anything, but because God loved you. And you were the least of all peoples. And we're told the same thing. I'm going to show you in the New Testament. It says the exact same thing. Every one of us, God wants us to remember that we were in the slave house. We were living in slave houses and it was a slavery to sin. And God found us there and bought us with a price, and made us a people. When I'm reading this exalted material by these apostles and prophets, there's not one hint in there that they have any consciousness that they're just saved sinners. They, don't, they never talk about it. They never talk about the gospel. They never talk about the grace of God that, brought, that made us a people. They're only talking about how great we are and how much greater we're going to be in the future. That's it. Now, that's not what we see in the New Testament, and it's not Paul's uh, pattern. Uh, we need to be of a sound mind if we're going to do people any good. All right? If somebody has an ecstatic experience like Paul did, that's between them and God. Don't advertise it. Don't put it on your calling card. Don't put it on your website. But when you talk to people, and I'm not keeping you from your experience with God, but when you talk to people, you must do so with a sound mind. Because the gospel is a, a very serious issue. It's about eternity. It's about how we know God. It's about how we become a people. It's about how God sanctifies us. And it's about that we're sinners saved by grace. And that's the very, very uh, needs to be explained. The, the thing that's so important is that people get it, that they understand, that they know the meaning of the scripture. That is clear. If there's any possible way to make it more clear, as far as I'm concerned, when it's my turn to preach, if I can find a way of making it more clear to you, I'll use it. I do the absolute best I can to make it clear. And uh, use whatever tools are available. And uh, not the least of which is the Logos Bible software. And I don't get a cut. but <laughs> uh, It's really handy, though. And because the clearer it is, the more powerful it impacts the person. And that's true because it's the nature of God's Word. So if I get all excited or any other preacher gets all excited and does cartwheels and runs up and down. Uh, I remember this one guy that came into town. Used to, he, he, he had an extra long mic cord. This was back before wireless mics. And he'd, go, and he'd go down the aisle swinging the mic like this. And you hope it was attached well. <laughs> And he'd, and he'd run up and down the aisle and grab people and haul them out of their chair. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so you, but that doesn't do anything. See, turning up the volume of the mic, um, the, 
uh, dressing extravagantly, shouting, running, doing cartwheels, getting ecstatic or beside yourself. It doesn't add anything. I'm not saying we can't have enthusiasm uh, about what we're doing and, and can't get excited about the Word of God, because I do. But nothing adds one bit to what God said. And nothing is more powerful than what God said and understanding what He means. And so, knowing you can't add anything to it, just be in a sound mind and explain it. Just explain the gospel. Um, Lincoln, Acts 26, 24 to 25. I think that's where Paul's accused of being out of his mind. Um, and then Keith, Romans 12 and verse 3. Nice to have you back, Leigh. Back from the East Coast. Hopefully, they're not turning you in, into a... Into a an Easterner, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You're going to still be a Midwest guy? Good. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 11. <clears throat> okay, uh, Acts 26, 24 to 25. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Vetus said with a loud, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You are, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. True and rational words. Yeah, I think it says in Numerian Standard, I speak words of sober truth. Sober truth. Uh, is that what it says? What translation do you have? ESV. ESV. Does somebody have a Numerian Standard of that? Acts 26 to 25? I think it says sober truth. The New King James says words of truth and reason. Truth and reason. The New King James. All right. This, New American Standard, 20, Acts 26, 25. Yeah, sober truth. Sober truth. That's yeah, what I thought. Yeah, I, I had a word of sober truth. Sober truth. I, I thought of that one when I had a debate with Padgett when he says you can't have adjectives attached to truth. <laughs> I found out after, afterwards why he says that, because adjectives define things. In other words, an adjective helps say what it is and what it isn't. And he doesn't want the term truth to be defined. If it's defined, then you have something to defend or, you know, reject. And then you have either or. But if it's just truth, whatever that might mean, which we're not going to say. And so I kept talking. I say propositional truth. Well, why do we get it? I don't want any adjectives. Get rid of the adjective. Why? Well, because sober truth, propositional truth, they, they're telling you what it means. They're making a, a proposition is a truth claim. A proposition is a statement they can be judged to be either true or false. Are there propositions in the Bible? The Bible says Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and appeared to many witnesses. That is a proposition. And it's either true or false. And, it, and it's based on the, what they discredit. The, the emerging church says we do not believe in the correspondence theory of truth. Now, they call this the correspondence theory, right? Eric, correspondence theory of truth. Now, what is the correspondence theory of truth? It's this. The statement, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, is true only if, in fact, a person named Jesus Christ actually lived and died and was actually raised from the dead in the real world. That's the correspondence theory. Okay, why do you want to get rid of that? Because then all statements are equally valid or invalid. They mean nothing. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. It was just as good a statement as Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. 
if you reject the correspondence idea of truth. Because it doesn't matter whether our statements correspond to anything in the real world. Yeah, and so then Paul, and Paul, then Paul can say, if Christ is not raised, we're all men most to be pitied. He didn't believe in this uh, relativism. Okay, so Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. I'm not irrational. I'm not having an ecstatic religious experience that can't be spoken of. I'm telling you words of sober truth. What were those words of sober truth? They were the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the need for repentance all of that is in there in his address before Agrippa and Festus. He was called before kings and he confessed the gospel. Those are the words of sober truth. I would not ask you to believe in Jesus Christ if I didn't believe that all of his claims were true and valid. And if I thought that this religion was only a self-betterment course, as I was taught, when I, I was told that, when I was 16, pastor says to me, there's no resurrection from the dead. And there's no miracles. There was no Adam and Eve. There was no Jonah. There was no Noah. And Jesus did no miracles. That's what the pastor told me at the Bible class. And I said, so then tell me, why, why are we doing this? Why do I have to go to this camp? Why do I have to go to church? Why do I have to read the Bible? And he said, so that you learn to be a better person. Well, now, I'm a 16-year-old, and I was still trying to figure out what life was all about, but it didn't seem reasonable to me that you had to believe Ms. like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus to be a better person. And it seemed to me that, well, I'm 16, and somebody already told me there's no Santa Claus. And I'm 16, and somebody already told me there was no Easter Bunny. But now they're telling me that Jesus didn't do it in the miracles the Bible said he did? And that all the stories in the Bible are Miz on par with the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus? The only rational thing to do was to quit being religious, which I did. I said, okay, I'm not going to feel guilty about doubting a God who lied to me in his own word. Why, why do I feel guilty about having doubts? So I walked away from the church, walked away from any kind of faith at all, until the Lord apprehended me when I was 20, 20 years old, starting by showing me that he existed through science. The teleological argument that I'd never even heard of was convincing me by, by studying science. Yes? I was just thinking it's true as proof of Paul saying <coughs> what was rational is that he, three times in Acts, it talks about his experience with Christ, the risen Christ, when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He doesn't talk about other things that might have happened. He talks about the one that was witnessed by other men who were actually hostile because they were going to kill Christians. And all men witnessed this event that he was talking about. So it wasn't just his word against everybody else's. It was his word and his enemy's word against everybody else's that this event really happened. Amen. Yeah. And, and he claimed his apostolic authority because he was appointed by the resurrected Christ. He had seen the risen Lord as one born out of time, as Oral was explaining to us. Okay, Romans 12, 3, Keith. So Paul was speaking words of sober truth, and that's particularly what the gospel is, words of sober truth. Or through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Yeah, so when we think about ourselves... 
think with sober, sound judgment. And the warning is not to think too lowly of ourselves. It's the warning not to think too highly of ourselves. Showing what Paul thought the natural tendency was, which is toward pride. Paul didn't know that there was going to be this low self-esteem epidemic that came across America in the 70s. He he, he didn't know about that one. Okay, Uh, then 2 Corinthians uh, 12 and verse 11. I've become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. (laughs) Even though I'm a nobody, I'm not inferior to the most eminent apostles. Let's just all turn to that because we keep referring to... I want to read the first six verses of 2 Corinthians 12. Because this is probably the background for this being beside himself. Here's what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 12, starting with verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ. Now, he's talking about himself here, but he says it this way, just in humility. Okay? Because later, he was given a thorn of flesh. I've had somebody say, well, no, that wasn't really Jesus. I mean, it wasn't really Paul. But then, he was because of this experience, he was given a thorn in the flesh, so it had to have been him that had the experience. All right. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Hmm. Nowadays, when they go to heaven, they come back and write a book. <laughs> Everyone. Everybody writes a book about it. Rick Joyner's got his book, and now some other guy's got his book. Paul, but Paul wasn't permitted to speak, so I don't know when the rules changed. Verse 5. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but not on my own behalf. I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. Um, again, referring to himself in the second person, such a man, I think out of humility here. Okay, I, I still think this was Paul's experience. But on such a man I will boast, not on my own behalf. I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do not wish to boast. So in other words, he doesn't want to boast about the experience. For, I, for I, if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. See, he's talking about himself, right? I, I don't want anybody to credit me anything but what he sees and hears right now, not what experience I had. So... People who base their claim to a superior spirituality based on a unique experience that they have are not following the apostolic pattern. All right? If somebody actually did have a very unique experience like Paul had, then what they should do is don't talk about it. All right? Verse 6. Seven And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. So that's how, that's how dangerous it is to have this experience. If the great apostle Paul, who was a sinner saved by grace, had to be buffeted by a messenger from Satan because of the... the the temptation would be too great because of this exalted experience that he had. Um, 
then it shows you that this isn't something that you want. This isn't something you should be seeking. Okay? And then this, this, Paul isn't just making this up. He's feeling like he has to mention that he had the experience to defend himself against guys who claim they had experiences. And they claim that their great authority came from their great experience. But Paul says, no, the only thing that you want to be concerned about is what you see and hear from me. Now what experience I have. And then Paul's the answer concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I used this in the faith at risk and down in Barbados, by the way. And that was very gratifying. Afterwards, these people were coming up to me uh, in Barbados and saying, I have these manifestations. What should I do? These people have been trying to cast demons out of me. I get these manifestations. What am I going to do? I said, do exactly what Paul did. Appeal to God and ask him to take it away. And don't directly interact with spirits. Just don't do it. Don't, you, you start interacting with spirits, you start getting manifestations. All right? So ignore the spirits. Go to God. Paul didn't rebuke Satan when he had a messenger from Satan. He asked God to take it away. And then uh, I, and I talked to other people after the meetings uh, with similar things. One came the last night. They came all, there's about 140 each night at the, at the meeting, which wasn't bad for, I mean, there's only 268,000 people on the whole island of Barbados. And uh, it was a fairly good turnout. But anyhow, I was talking to these people, and, and my heart went out to them. They'd been beat up by these teachings. And this, and this one lady talked to me after the last night's meeting, and she told me the story how she'd been living in fear about curses uh, because the, this teaching says that any one of four generations of people can be causing a curse to come on you. And you don't know who it is, and there's no way to know. And so, so this lady was under this fear that she was cursed, and she kept going to these guys to try to break curses, but, no, but you never know you're done with it because you don't know who did what of your ancestors. And so I said, so I laid out this thing about the relational, not the, remember the thing of faith at risk? Blessing and cursing are relational. If you are Abraham's son, you are blessed. If you are in Christ, you are blessed. And at the Barbados, I brought out the thing about Jesus said, if as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And what does that signify? The serpent signifies the curse. And so what Jesus was saying is that he is bearing the curse. So everyone that looks to him, like they did, they looked to that brazen serpent in the wilderness, they were healed. Everyone that looks to him is blessed and not cursed. And that's all you need to know. And this, so this lady was saying, Oh, I, she says, I'm so relieved. I'm so relieved to know that all I need to do is trust Jesus. And I don't have to go, on, go trying to figure out who cursed me or what words are spoken over me or what's going on. It's just liberating to know the truth. And the Bible does say that the truth will set you free. <laughs> I remember reading something in Proverbs that said... Oh. An undeserved curse does not land. Or yeah, it won't, it won't alight. Yeah, oh, it won't yeah. land on you. Yeah. That brought me comfort. A, a causeless curse will not alight. And, and the whole thing is relational and not based on a kind of a magical approach. So Paul 
have this thing coming. And so it's, it's such a, one of the questions, and during the question and answer time, one question that they kept, that came up several times was, um, can a Christian be demon-possessed? They wanted to just say no. They wanted a yes or no. No, you cannot be demon-possessed, or yes, you can. And I said, well, the term possessed isn't really used in the New Testament. Uh, that, that was a translation into English. was not in there. And I said, you don't have to decide these things. You don't have to decide anything. All you have to do is go to God, and, and once you do, if you come to God on his terms and you trust Jesus Christ, then Satan can't do anything to you unless he gets permission from God. And so if you don't like what Satan's doing, I would ask God about it. <laughs> okay? And, but, 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 but they want to, no, no, you don't have to even, I don't even have to deny anything. I don't know what these demons are doing or why they're doing it. All I know is that for the Christian, they have to ask God's permission. And do you need to know any more than that? And, and if you go addressing them, you will get manifestations. And if you start taking the manifestation as proof of your doctrine, you'll get, well, like I did, I spent five years doing that because I was believing my experience and not totally understanding the Bible the way I should have. So that's that. Now, talks about having a sound mind, and that's how we administer the gospel to people. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, we'll just introduce this here. We'll look about two minutes. In fact, I'm only just going to read this, and then you have an announcement, don't you? It says, for the love of Christ controls us. In other words, not being out of your mind, not being in a religious ecstatic frenzy, out of control, but of a sound mind, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And that's the sober truth, sound reason that Paul was talking about before Festus, when Festus says he's out of his mind. Nope, I'm not out of my mind. I'm giving you words of sober truth. And that is that Jesus Christ really did walk the face of the earth. He really was God incarnate. He really did predict his own resurrection from the dead. And he really was raised before many witnesses. And he really did tell us that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be preached to all the nations. And Paul preached it to Agrippa. He talked about repentance in front of Agrippa. And was that the case where he's in the King James? I don't know why I had this memorized in the King James because it kind of sounds kind of cool. In the King James, it says, the, the, the king says, Thou almost persuadest me to be a Christian. Uh, you're going you're to convince me to be a Christian. And Paul says, I do hope that you become like me, save these chains. He wanted to be respectful. He said, I don't want you to be in chains like me, but I'd like you to be a Christian. That's what he told the king. So those are the words of sober truth. And the love of Christ controls us, not frenzied religious ecstasy that's out of control. Okay? So we'll start with that one. And Paul is going to talk about uh, Christ, the consequences of Christ having died for all. Now, you have to listen carefully because Robert has a very important announcement 